and he who gave over his one and only son for us all so that all we have is the Messiah, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? So that to say all I have is Christ is to say we have everything. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. And... uh, couple of things before we get started. Number one, uh, if you're on the live stream with us, maybe you see these uh, communion tables here. And so might, now might be a moment where you want to hit pause on uh, the YouTube live stream and go find some elements for when we'll celebrate uh, communion later after the sermon uh, this morning. And so I just want to give you an opportunity to do that. Um, also, another reminder, I, I don't say this very often, um, but if you're new to grace and or maybe you've been coming to church for a while, I think it's good to just be reminded every once in a while that the preacher doesn't have it all together. Um, yeah, you can amen that. <laughs> Pre- appreciate that. <laughs> I, I grew up, I grew up kind of placing a, a preacher on a pedestal. And when I'm preaching, I've, I've really been worked over the coals. If it makes you feel any better, I've, I've been worked over the coals by God before I got here to this point in this text. Uh, I need this sermon as much as you need this. I probably need this sermon more than you need this sermon. So I'm, I'm, just, another, I'm just another guy in the process in the middle of my own sanctification, um, just trying to grow one step closer to Jesus along with you. And so just want that to be clear. Because sometimes, you know, about every fourth Sunday, I get a little excited up here. And uh, <laughs> some of you got that. <laughs> so, yeah, we're, we're, all, we're all trying to do this together. A few moments ago, Pastor Jim read Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. Last week, we focused our attention on verses 1 and 2. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you, I, I appeal to you to, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So present your body, renew your mind, so that you may discern what is the good and pleasing and perfect will of God. We we learned the exciting message last week that true disciples of Jesus are men and women, boys and girls, who are in the constant process of transformation into the image of Jesus the Messiah. And we learned that grace, because it's grace, is opposed to to earning, but it is not opposed to what is the most natural and expected response that any follower of Jesus would have as they reflect on the remarkable mercies of God that Paul has detailed for page upon page of his letter. Namely, the response 
of the effort of presenting our physical bodies as living sacrifices, which is very pleasing to our Father. The response of the the effort of renewing our minds day by day so that what we think is in alignment with who God is and who we are in relationship to Jesus the Messiah. And we were also reminded of the encouraging truth that we don't, we do not, we cannot, we are not expected to do this alone. We're family. We're family. You, you, you look around at each other. These are your brothers and your sisters who are in this with you. We're better together, helping each other work this out. As those who want to, we said last week, be with Jesus and become like Jesus and do what Jesus did. Let's put those up there, Terry. To be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do what Jesus did. We, we visualized it this way. I gave you these uh, two circles, right? Like We are this group of people called Grace Church, true disciples, being transformed, body and mind, who are living in this age, looking towards a future age, and pulling that future age into the present. So there's this overlap of the ages here on this place, and we're to be this bright and shining example, a city on a hill, the salt of the earth. That's what we're being constantly transformed to become more and more of. One of the things I love about Paul, (laughs) I love that Paul can be both brilliant and straightforward at the same time. You see, there's a very clear structure, I believe, in verses 1 to 8 for what he is addressing for us as obedient disciples and followers of Jesus. We we look at the breakout this way. We see him talk about the body in verse 1, the mind in verse 2. Then he sticks with that theme of the mind in verse 3 and then comes back to the body in verses 4 through 8. Theologians, exegetes call this a chiasm. Body, mind, mind, body. It's a very clear structure in his thinking here. In verses 1 and 2, he establishes a foundation for his teaching. That's what we did last week. We tried to build a foundation, listening to Paul. And now in verses 3 to 8, and really on through chapter 16, he's going to keep now building on that foundation of presenting our bodies and our minds to be transformed into the image of Jesus, becoming like Jesus. We keep coming back to that foundation of what we do with our bodies and what we do with our minds. Because if we get that wrong, those two foundational principles, things just kind of get wonky in our lives and in the church. And so if we're seeing wonkiness, then then we're supposed to go back to the fundamentals and say, "Is, is there something that I'm not doing right with my body or thinking right with my mind? Am I not practicing the way. And then when we do that, we go back to the fundamentals and we, we get back on track. So now let's turn, let's turn our attention to verse 3 and start building on that foundation along with Paul. I, I really appreciate how one author describes what Paul has written here. He says, these commands are given because humility and unity are among the first steps toward becoming living sacrifices 
and experiencing the renewal of your mind. Good news transformation requires a modest view of self and a generous view of others. (laughs) A modest view of self and a generous view of others. You see, Paul is keeping with the theme of the renewal of the mind in verse 3 by describing how we should be thinking of ourselves and of others who make up the community of Jesus, the family of faith, which is called what? The church. For by the grace given to me, verse 3, I tell everyone among you not to think of himself or herself more highly than he or she should think. Instead, think sensibly. Do that as God has distributed a measure of faith to each one. He has distributed a measure of faith to you to be able to do this. Look what Paul's doing here. Paul's not brash about his right to tell everyone among the community of faith what they must do, but he is clear about his authority. For by the grace given to me, What is Paul on about here? How does grace give Paul the right to command? Well, because the grace he's pointing to is something that he has been given. Paul has been given a gift, a gracious gift. And what is Paul's gift that he has been given? We saw it all the way back at the the very beginning of the letter in chapter 1, verse 5 and following. He has been given the gift to be an apostle. And that apostleship comes with responsibilities and authority. Paul has the right to tell us how to live as transformed disciples of Jesus. And if we're thinking rightly, we're glad for Paul. We're glad for his gift and that he is exercising it by instructing us. Who here is become increasingly glad for Paul over our study in Romans? I have. I, I love this. I can't wait to meet him. I mean, we're going to get to meet him. This short, scarred, apparently ugly, not good speaking dude. Maybe his body will be different in the new heavens and new earth, but I can't wait. What's his instruction in verse 3? Let me give you a more literal translation here so you can see Paul's emphasis more clearly. Do not overthink what you ought to think of yourself, but think of yourself in a sober thinking way. What do you think he's talking about? (laughs) Maybe he's thinking about thinking. Now here's, here's the deal. This is actually quite the bold statement from the apostle because it is fiercely countercultural to the ethos of Rome at the time. Here's what one historian says about the culture in Rome. Humility was not an ancient virtue. Humility was for your inferiors, for slaves, plebs, retainers. You will not find Plato or Epictetus extolling the virtue of humilitas as it would amount to self-debasement 
And that was the opposite of social life in Rome, which was fiercely competitive and consumed with the pursuit of honor and status. Raising yourself above others was the aim in Rome. Yet Paul expects believers to do the exact opposite, to think of themselves with self-modesty and not self-promotion, end quote. It appears we're pretty Roman in our cultural ethos. Fiercely competitive, consumed with the pursuit of honor and status, raising ourselves above others as the aim of the game. Shameless self-promotion. It all sounds as American as baseball, hot dogs, apple pie, and Chevrolet. And how grievous that this defines the aim of most of our leaders, cultural influencers, politicians, and the like, constantly jockeying for position, constantly pulling down others to rise to the top, constantly, shamelessly promoting self anywhere possible, particularly on places like Facebook and X and TikTok and Instagram and threads and Snapchat and all the rest, with so many following their lead. And Paul is saying it is irrational, insane behavior driven by desires and passions. And he's saying that that kind of toxicity infects the church. And Paul has the antidote for that kind of thinking that's coursing through the people in our culture. And his antidote is to, he says it, do you see it? Think sensibly. It's a really unique word that Paul is using here. It's used only six times in all of the New Testament. One scholar noted it's almost untranslatable in English. You find words like that in other languages, right? Sometimes it's really hard to get at. What would that mean? Have you ever been with someone who speaks another language? You're like, I'm trying to think like how I would really say this. It's one of those kinds of words. In a number of places in the ancient writings where the attempt is made, the phrase is often translated to be in one's right mind. As Paul uses it here, I think it means something along the lines of thinking in a self-controlled way over one's passions and desires. In other words, it's highly likely that what Paul is on about is counseling us against fantasies about our own importance. One recalls Han Solo coming out of being encased in carbonite by Darth Vader and being told by Chewie. You remember Chewie? That Luke is considering himself a Jedi Knight. Do you remember Han's response? A Jedi Knight? Geez, I'm out for a little while and everybody gets delusions of grandeur. And don't dismiss Paul's similar response here to the Romans, to us, that we not get delusions of grandeur either. For what Paul is saying that disciples and followers must do, that we must do is to regularly and consistently assess ourselves soberly and modestly in light of the humbling realities of human sinfulness and God's grace described in the good news. 
This is so important. That, that, is, that is so important and, and difficult and counter to our nature. And it's so healthy. It's so healthy for, for a person and for a people to, to live this way, to think this way. This is the pathway to joy. This is the pathway to usefulness. Do you want to be a useful human? <laughs> this is the pathway to usefulness in God's kingdom work. It is the only way, I believe, that Paul is saying that we can be who we must be. And Paul has given us everything in this letter that we need to do exactly this. What does it look like to think sensibly, soberly? So I'm going to suggest that we do that right now. That we're not, let's not wait till later because maybe we won't. You, you'll forget. You'll forget this moment in the sermon as you're walking out the door maybe even. So let's respond right now to Paul's command and his instruction to do this as a community, right? Because he's writing to a community. What better time than now with all of us here? Huh? So pull out your service guide for me, if you would. Hope you got a service guide and you came in. And you're going to see uh, under the sermon notes area two headings, two columns there. One says, my sinfulness, and the other says, God's grace in Jesus. And what I believe that Paul is helping us to see is that if we will think sensibly about ourselves in light of these two realities of ourselves, it will create the possibility of not thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. Because that's what he has said to do. So the way to do that is to reflect on our sinfulness and to reflect on the stunning nature of this grace that was given to us that we did not earn. So take a few minutes now and list some things there to help you think sensibly. I'll put two questions on the screen for you. What were some examples of your own sinfulness this past week, maybe you don't have to go past this morning, that humble you? And what were some specific examples of God's grace in Jesus this past week that humble you or maybe even directly addressed that sin? Let's take a few minutes and do that right now. to go. It's not a lot of time. You spend some more time on it later. I'd encourage you to do that. I, I wonder if your experience was similar to mine this past week. Maybe not, because I had more time to think about it. Recalling my sinfulness reminded me of my frailty. It was sobering to think of all of the times that I am tempted to be or was has this, has this ever happened to you, this temptation or this falling to this temptation of looking at someone else? You, you catch someone else in their sin or you hear about someone else in their sin and you're like, oh, geez. Man, are you kidding me? Like, really? You did that? As if I'm somehow superior to them? 
Like, some, like I'm somehow free from my own sinfulness? I've got my own weaknesses, my own besetting sins, and recognizing and listing them out popped the proverbial balloon of my fantasies about my own superiority. And recalling God's grace in my life then, because, listen, there's a wrong definition of humility that's floating around the church. Some people think that humility means thinking less of yourself. That's not what humility is. That's why I wanted you to to think about God's kindness to you, God's grace to you, because that helps you get past any despair that might be present because of your sin, wrongly causing you to think that you're inadequate or disqualified to be a part of the work that he is doing in the world through this church family. That's where Satan wants you, feeling condemned. Can I tell you how often I don't want to get up in this pulpit because I, I don't deserve to be here, God. I'm so inadequate for this. See my sin. He says, yeah, okay, fair enough, but I want you to see my grace. I want you to see, instead of saying, woe is me, look at what a loser I am. Instead, he says, I want you to say, look how forgiven I am. Look how adopted I am. How covered in the righteousness of Jesus I am. How part of the Messiah I am. How useful for his purposes I am. If one were to sing it, it might be, now Lord, I would be yours alone. And live so all might see the strength to follow your commands could never come from me. Oh, Father, use my ransom life in any way you choose. And let my song forever be my only boast is you. Okay. So often we maybe don't pay attention to the word because you all just committed to giving your life to him when you sang that. If you sang that song, okay, so... Let me help you see what it looks like to keep the promise you made earlier. Remember the flow of Paul's argument. Body, mind, mind, body. So he's going to talk about the body. Again, this is is brilliant because Paul so understands us as humans. He knows that as part of our transformation, in response to his mercies, We first have to have a modest view of ourselves so that we might have a generous view of others. And those two views then, modest view of self, generous view of others, right? Because humility isn't thinking less about yourself. It's thinking about yourself less. So it releases in you to give your bodies to the body of Messiah. Verse 4. Now, as we have many parts in one body and all the parts do not have the same function, in the same way, we who are many are one body in the Messiah and individually members of one another. 
All right, there's a danger right here for those of you who've been in the church for any length of time because you've probably heard this passage many, many times used in the church. And maybe you're th- and you've heard this language used before about the body and we're all parts of the body. And you're like, yeah, okay, yep, we're all parts of the Messiah. I get it. And your eyes start to glaze over. I'm going to encourage you not to do that right now. Shake that off. Do what you need to to shake that off and hear Paul. Do not let the familiarity of this text rob you of the joy of what God is calling us to and what he means to do in us. As Jim said earlier already this morning, his excitement to, to see Timothy come, come on the team. And I said it last week, like I, I feel God is moving in us, you guys. Like I feel like he has us here right at exactly this, the exact time that we need to be in Romans 12 to do remarkable things in this body of the Messiah, this expression of the body of the Messiah. I mean, we are right in the middle, right in the smack dab center of so much around us going to hell in a handbasket. And instead of being upset about that, oh my goodness, I was so convicted a few weeks ago being upset about that, like reading in the Wall Street Journal stories and you're getting like all upset. And it, all of a sudden it hit me, What a time to be living. What an amazing moment that I get to be. Thank you, God. Thank you for letting me be in this historical moment when things seem to be falling apart because what a better time to be a Christian. What a better time to follow Jesus. What a better time to have answers. Oh my goodness. What a time in the middle of insanitiesville with this election upon us. Good heavens. Don't forget our circle picture, right? This is, I got to come up with a name for this, some kind of a cool name. I'm so excited about being Grace Church right there and calling the future into the present with my brothers and sisters. I just, gosh, look at you guys. Like there's, there's just so much possibility so much opportunity. Ah! I just love it. Look at all of you. Ah, oh, thank you, Jesus. Wow. See, Paul's vision encompasses the church. Paul envisions a new society, a new society of transformed individuals that function as God's prototype. Listen to this. For what human society will look like when his restoration of the world is complete and and to do that now that that's paul's vision i mean (laughs) do you think about grace church like that as a prototype for what human society is going to look like when the new age breaks in do you think about us like that or do you just have like ho-hum thoughts about grace church i do not I think about us like this. I'm excited to be that in Salida. And if we, do you believe it's possible? Maybe you're not thinking that way right now. That's okay. It's okay. Do you believe it's possible? Because Paul is saying that you should. Why? Because we're in Messiah. You see it there in the text? We are in Messiah, verse 5. So therefore, we should have all the confidence that we need. 
For Jesus, for Paul, Jesus is the shaping force underlying the whole of his argument and our self-assessment. Don't look in the mirror and just see you. See how God sees you in Jesus. We're in the Messiah. The Messiah is in us. Which means the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit is in us. Isn't that what Romans 8 was all about? So just think for a few moments. Think for a few moments. Maybe you could write this later on on your little sermon notes area there. Think of all of the things that Jesus was able to do because the Holy Spirit was anointing him. Remember, fully man. He needed, Jesus needed the Holy Spirit to come upon him. Before he went into ministry, he was anointed by the Spirit. We need that same Spirit too. And we have that same Spirit. So God will accomplish no less through us than he did through Jesus. No less. Actually, (laughs) dare we say it, more. How in the world do I have the right to say that? Because I didn't say it. John 14, 12. Truly I tell you, the one who believes in me says Jesus, will also do the works that I do and he will do even greater works than these because I'm leaving and the Spirit's coming. So this is the way. For all you Mandalorian fans, this is the way. By the power of the Spirit. But there's a condition here. This will only happen if we depend on each other. We have to depend on the Spirit, and we have to depend on each other. This vision is possible, but only if we see that our bodies are needed in the body. We will be this new society of transformed individuals, but only if we understand and live as individually parts of another. Listen, family, I believe that what Paul is aiming at as he aims at unity in the church through humility, he is aiming at involvement. We are in Messiah. And the only way that we can live transformed is in the community as a part of the body of Messiah. I believe that Paul is teaching that a fundamental part of our salvation is being made part. And let's not say member because I think that gets us confused thinking of this, like this whole thing, like it's some kind of gym membership or something. Rewards club. You know, I'm a member. Let's say part. We're a part of this body, which is the church. I need you to listen closely, all you here and on the live stream. Paul doesn't think this is an option. It's not an option. If Paul, or Jesus for that matter, would run into you, and and, and let's say you're a confessing disciple and follower of Jesus, well, if, if they would find you as someone who is not an active part of a local church engaged and serving as part of that family of the Messiah, that would be absolutely shocking to them. It would be a completely foreign concept to them. They they just don't have a category for a person like that. See, Paul is connecting the dots between who we are and how we think, verses 1 to 3, to what we must therefore do and the way in which we must do it. So for all of those who, who constantly cry out, give me application, give me application, here it is. Being a part of a local church family, giving your body to that body is absolutely foundational to being a disciple of Jesus. It's one of the most basic realities of following Jesus. 
You have to be part of a church. You have to serve. You have to serve as part of a church. Can I say something controversial? Let me say something controversial. That'll teach me to ask questions or ask permission. If you are not a part of a church, the chances are that you may not be a disciple of Jesus. At least, we could at least say not an obedient one. Because your life just doesn't make sense biblically. Paul and Jesus simply wouldn't understand what you are doing, who you think you are, and it would be troubling to them. In the same way, it would be troubling to come across a hand disconnected from a human body. You know, you remember Thing from the Adams family? (laughs) It would be just as shocking to Jesus and Paul to come upon you and like, well, no, I'm, no, I'm just out here. I'm, I'm just doing my thing as a hand. I mean, that's freaky, right? <laughs> it is. It's freaky. And it, it should be just as freaky to us when we see someone who's disconnected. Because how can they function on their own? And how can a body function in the way that it is supposed to without the hand? I mean, that would be really difficult, right? And so it naturally follows that that Paul would begin here at the most basic level because his aim is a healthy body with all of the parts that God desires it to have so that it can be all that it was meant to be, to shine forth in beauty to the world, right? Like that's that image. Paul knows there's all these parts that we need in order to be that. Bodies don't function well when they're missing vital organs. Paul is revealing to us that very different people with different skills and gifts will, they will, they're they're enabled to by faith because of grace, work together for the common good. That's what we're supposed to be. An example of that to the world. If 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 we can't figure that out, no one can. Romans 12, 6 through 8. According to the grace given to us, spoken of the grace given to him, it's the same for us. According to the grace given to us, we, we're having different gifts. If prophecy, use it according to the proportion of one's faith. If service, use it in service. If teaching, in teaching. If exhorting, in exhortation. Giving with generosity. Leading with diligence. Showing mercy with cheerfulness. Okay, there's something you got to know about lists like this from Paul. He uses them elsewhere in his writings too. And, and you know what? They're never meant to be exhaustive. Okay? They're not exhaustive. They're just examples. He, he, wants get, he wants to get us thinking. The larger point is that we all have gifts. We all have gifts. There's not a person in this room who doesn't have a gift. And the point is we're not supposed to merely use it for ourselves but for others. For the common good. That's how they... Actually, that's how the gift truly helps us and fulfills us is when we're using it for someone else. That, that's when the most joy happens. I would not be happy standing in my bathroom for 40 minutes doing this. Here's where I do it. Here's where the joy comes. 
It's how they make the body look beautiful is when they're exercised for others because all of the parts are functioning in a healthy way and and we bless others by using our gifts for their good and we don't rob them of that, but we bless them with that. There's something else I want to make sure that you understand about these gifts because in my experience, there's been a great deal of confusion when the church starts to talk about spiritual gifts in quotes, okay? You see, in Romans 12, note something. He doesn't say spiritual gift. He says gift. And the gifts he lists lists here are ones that a disciple of Jesus or someone who is not a disciple of Jesus could have, right? Service, teaching, exhorting, giving, leading, showing mercy. I know plenty of people who do not know Jesus who do those things and do them incredibly well. So it's not that you need to take some special test in some book or on a website to discover your spiritual gift. Just pay $9.99. We'll tell you how to serve the body of Christ. No, God bless you. It's not as if your conversion to Jesus has, as a part of it, some new skill or ability that appears in your life. (laughs) I mean, that may happen. God could do that. But here's what I think happens far more frequently. You see, I believe that every single one of us comes into this world made uniquely in the image of God with a certain set of skills, gifts, and abilities that God has uniquely wired into us. And then, and then we meet Jesus. (laughs) And we bend the knee to him. And he radically saves us and anoints us with his Holy Spirit. And what the Spirit does now is empower the gifts that we already were given by him and use them in a unique way for his glory and the good of others by bringing about the kingdom of God, thus becoming a spiritual, empowered by the Holy Spirit, gift. And we have all of those gifts. You see, when God gives us those things, we have an obligation now. The gift comes with an obligation to use it for others in the name of Jesus as part of something bigger, right? As part of something bigger. We're not just on our own. We're part of something bigger. We have an obligation to do that and use that for the sake of others, You see, we're obligated to each other. I need you. You need me. We need each other's gifts. There's no other way. There's just no other way this works. Listen to Douglas Moo. We cannot understand what the Scripture says apart from others who are reading the same Scripture. Okay, did you hear that? You can't just read your Bible on your own. You talk about it with... Other people, let them talk about it with you. We cannot live the life of a disciple of the Messiah apart from the nurturing context of a community of believers who encourage each other, pray for each other, set an example for each other. We cannot discern blind spots in our obedience to the Messiah without other parts of the body pointing them out. And then you having the humility to say, oh my goodness, you're right. Oh my goodness. Woo! I did not see that behavior in me. That has to change. Would you help me? Would you pray for me? This is exactly, Moo, Douglas Moo, this is exactly the problem that Paul is rebuking in chapter 12, verse 3. There are too many people thinking more highly of themselves than they ought to think, and they conclude that they don't need the help of others. Or just as worse, 
They are so self-centered that they don't believe others need the help that they have to offer as part of the body. Oh my goodness. Don't rob us of you. Of the unique you that's you. So now it comes to it. Here at the end. You're here this morning and you realize maybe being honest with yourself in light of Paul's instruction, maybe you're realizing that you're not truly a part of this church family. Not truly. Because your connection has consisted merely of Sunday morning attendance and nothing more. There hasn't been any intentionality to one, recognize the grace of God in the gifts that he has given you or two, to use them as part of the body of the Messiah. Or maybe you do recognize and believe that you have a particular gift, but it doesn't seem like there's an opening to use it. And so there's no area of service that you think that you can be involved in to be a part of this body of the Messiah. And you see, I think when Paul says that we're to think sensibly, remember the exercise earlier, I believe he means for us to think as servants as part of something bigger than us, more important than us. <laughs> Michael Bird says it this way, an easy way to tell if you have a servant heart is how you act when you're treated like a servant. Do you see some services as beneath your calling? Or are you willing to go wherever you're needed? Or would you do any job that needs to be done even if crowds don't throng to thank you, and even if nobody notices you. I think of someone I heard recently here at Grace. This is just a couple weeks ago. This person said, you know, the area that I'm serving right now that everyone gives me so much encouragement for because this person is so good in this area. When I first came, I didn't want to do it at all. I fought it. But it was what my church needed from me at the time, and so I did it. What an example. Paul knows that this is the way service is released and gifts are used, and the wider body will have what it needs, but only if every part of the body sees that it needs to be a part of the body. You see, the question isn't, will you use your gift for the church? The question is, where will you serve? See the difference? Where will you serve? Okay, so I'm moving away from the iPad because God told me, I don't like the end of your sermon, Matthew. And he gave me a different one. But I didn't have time to type it. All I had time to do was write it. Because what hit me is, you should be, you should be asking of me Okay, what are you expecting of me? Fair enough. I feel like I understand the sermon. What do you want me to do? First, let us know that you'd like to help. We have a great deal that could be done at Grace Church at the direction of various heads of ministries and staff, the deacons. You ask a deacon, 
<laughs> listen, you ask a deacon, is there a place that I could help you? Oh my God, I got a list for you. I guarantee it. Second, make sure to read the Grace email each and every week where we frequently post needs in the church. For example, the tech team. Let me tell you about our tech team. Do you all like that you can hear me right now? Do you like that you can see your Bibles because of these lights? Do you like that there are words up on a screen when songs are being played so that you can sing along? That, look at those folks back there. That all happens because those five people are sitting back there doing that work. We have the same roughly five people that serve 52 Sundays. And they have guaranteed me, Pastor, we can train anybody. <laughs> anybody. I mean, how would you feel if you were at home and it was only one person who ever did all of the work? Right? As part of the family. That, that just wouldn't make sense, would it? So you could serve on the tech team. You could serve at the granary. You could serve, sports camp is right around the corner. There's discipleship of students and adults that are needed, hospital visits, delivering meals, cleaning this facility, serving at family night at Grace. We could, we could change that 20% are doing 80%. Wouldn't it be great to have so many lists of people that are willing to serve that we don't have enough work to do for all of them? Third, it doesn't just happen in this family, but it's how we serve in our community. Okay, so don't, don't hear me saying that it's only within this family. Service happens in this family, but a lot of times that service goes from this family out into the world. At places like the VRC or volunteering at a school or helping with the food shelf or serving on a school board, right? It may not always be directly in this family. There's so many ways that we can serve. This year's Are You Serving? Fourth, don't forget the balance of a gift you have versus a need that you could meet. Look at Paul's list here. Give, Give generously. Teach, teach others. Show mercy. Look at the other lists in Corinthians and Ephesians. We need all of these to be healthy. And if you see a need that no one is meeting and it's not your gift or skill set, remember, God gifted you with a body, a brain, a heartbeat, hands and feet. Meet the need. We can do it, right? I'm called to preach. That's one of the main gifts that God has called me to. But I can also set up chairs. I can also take out garbage when it's needed. It's not below me. I'm just a part of this family. Fifth and finally, remember, this is supposed to be a sacrifice. <laughs> so often I think that we think it's always supposed to feel good. It's always supposed to feel good when we do good. But sometimes the learning and the growing that we need comes from painfully doing something we didn't want to do. That's why he says, offer your body as a living sacrifice. You sacrifice money so ministry can occur and needs can be met and you don't get to buy other things because you gave that money away. You sacrifice possessions so someone else can have what they need. You sacrifice time because a, a service needs to be rendered. You sacrifice your heart, your heart opening yourself up to someone else's pain. You sacrifice yourself you die to yourself. You deny yourself for someone else. And in this way, you do what? You take up your cross. And you follow your king who commanded you 
to do that. Daily to take up your cross. So that at the end of your life in this age, you will be able to stay, to say, standing before Jesus, won't it be great to say, I learned that you were right. I learned it was, it was really no sacrifice, Jesus, to just give my body for you and for your people. This table is a visible and somewhat shocking display of just this kind of service. It is a beautiful picture of a man not thinking of himself more highly than he ought to think. And instead, having a generous view of others. A man who, would be in, who we would be inclined to say actually should think of himself quite as highly as he wants, thank you very much. A man who we'd probably agree would have the right to say that certain things are beneath him, given that he's the actual son of God. But in the context of this meal, I wonder if you remember how we see the servant heart of Jesus. For it was Jesus who, when all the disciples had gathered together for the Last Supper that they would share, when it became apparent that there was no one to perform the task that even Jewish servants would not perform, but was given only to Gentile slaves, the job of washing dirt and dust and sweat and manure from the streets off of people's feet and, and from between their toes... Because, you know, they'd recline at table, right? They'd recline. So stinky feet would be by heads. And so you clean those feet off. Well, there was not one disciple that was rushing forward for this job. And so you know who did? Jesus. Jesus washed toes in toe jam. Jesus bent down and took a basin with water and put a towel around his waist and began to wash their feet, the task that nobody else wanted to do because he didn't think it was beneath him. And at the protestations of Peter, you can't wash my feet? He said, I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done. What was Jesus saying? He's not saying, go wash someone's feet today. What he's saying is, see a need, meet the need, give your body, think this way. And then he shared wine and bread. He gave us this meal that represents the greatest act of service that anyone could possibly have rendered in the history of the world. He gave his, gave his body so that, there, so that this could happen, so that we could be a body. He gave his blood so my sin could And all this darkness could be made white as snow. Jesus made it possible for us to be a part 
of something bigger, a new society of transformed individuals that would function as God's prototype for what human society will look like when the restoration of the world is complete. That is what is on offer here. That's what's on offer. That's what we're called to remember here. So come and welcome to Jesus, the Messiah. If you're in that service, would you come up? If you're in that section over there, just go to the wall. Come over this way. You don't have to be a part of Grace Church to do this. You just have to be a part of Jesus. If you're in this section, come to that aisle and come over this way. And if you're in this section, come over this way. And that section, head to the wall. Come this way. Come and welcome to Jesus Christ. When Paul was writing to the church at Corinth about the meal that Jesus gave to us, he wrote this. For I received from our master what I then passed on to you. That on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks to his father for it, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this and remember me. In the same way, Paul wrote, he also took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim our Messiah's death. How does he finish it? Until he comes. He's coming. <laughs> We're remembering what he did, what he's doing, and what he will And what Paul has been on about, as we've been learning in this weeks, is that there's a response that we should have to all of this mercy and grace. Namely, we should follow in obedience our King Jesus. So stand and proclaim that commitment today. <laughs>